texts, three different sections of God's Word as I take up two summary biblical theological sermons that deal with many of the themes that we find in the book of Revelation. The first, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, and then Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, and Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And his armies in heaven, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with an iron rod. He himself will tread the, who treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And then Revelation, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. These, that is the Old Testament saints, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off, were assured of them, embracing them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 22. But you, he's writing to the New Testament saints, have come to not Jerusalem, but Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, we would ask now as we come to your word that we might be those whose life and doctrine are ever governed and guided by your word. Lord, where there is not faith in the heart of men and women and children this morning, that you might give it freely out of your bountiful mercy. O oh Lord, truly we are helpless, we are naked, we are hopeless. But you have sent your Son into the world to save sinners and that you might by your Spirit redeem, exhort, nurture, make us to feel our share in the glorious inheritance that comes by faith. This we pray through the preaching of your word. Amen. Recently, uh, I was asked... Uh, by my father and introduced to a, a fellow seminary graduate who is struggling with a call to ministry, what kinds of things should he be thinking about 
How should he be thinking about the call to the pastorate? What sort of emotions and desires ought one have? That's impossible to do with someone you've never met. But I gave my two cents for what it's worth. Maybe one cent. Maybe that's all it was worth. (laughs) And I said to him this. Of all the things I love to do, uh, preaching in terms of pastoral ministry is towards the top. And since that time when I realized the plot, we have not only in heaven a glorious redeemer, but we have here on earth a very capable foe. I went from excited, ready, willing to preach to chomping at the bit most Sundays. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have an off Sunday where I just kind of would rather have breakfast and enjoy the sun and not feel the pressure and hurry of the day. But the theme that we see here that I'm touching upon this morning is the theme that gets me up every day. It is, for me, one of the most important theological concepts found within the whole of Scripture related to the current state of the church and what Christ has done in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and taking the right hand, the seat of authority that sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Such that the question I ask myself is, has anything changed since the days of the first steps of the covenant of grace made with Abraham so long ago? And the answer to that question must be, well, certainly. But to what degree? What has changed? What has developed? What we have seen, I think, if you take the covenant step by step, is the unfolding of the plan of God's revelation. And that with every patriarch or particular person or institution that is a type and shadow, that means they are a kind of foreshadowing of the Christ who would come. What do they say about Christ once he has come? The one who has died and been raised and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What has changed? What has changed in particular of what I read from Hebrews 11? Those Old Testament saints who looked forward as strangers and aliens to a homeland, and now we, who in Christ Jesus, are home. How are we to live as those who are even now walking about in the space that is our very inheritance? I put forward to you this premise then. We are not exiles. Not in the way that the church often speaks, and certainly not in the way that Russell Moore speaks every time there's an election, and men like him. And I speak of Russell Moore because he's popular. Then there are a lot of men like him, right? Let's not get too involved. That's outside the lane of the church. Well, whose lane is it? To whom do all the seats of authority and power belong? Now, I'm not saying they belong directly to the church, but they certainly belong to Jesus Christ. How are we then to live as those who walk amongst their inheritance? What the resurrection of Christ assures us of, if anything, concerning the nations and the mission 
to reach the nations is that we will be successful in the work. Christ does not send us forth with the Great Commission and the Holy Spirit to not be successful, but to have success. And not only over the individual hearts of men, but of nations themselves, of tongues themselves, of tribes themselves, brothers. We are not exiles, sisters. We are not exiles. Jordan Wilson writes this. We are not exiles, at least not in the way commonly taught. Many Christians think that the Bible teaches that new covenant Christians are spiritual exiles on the earth. This refrain is constantly repeated within Christian circles, usually any time politics is brought up in any relation to Christianity. In reality, the Bible teaches the opposite. Christians need to understand the difference between someone who is literally in exile, such as a Babylonian exile, right? Israel in the Old Testament. And someone who is metaphorically or spiritually in exile. The word exile is used to refer to New Covenant saints a total of three times. All three times are contained in one epistle. Do you know that epistle? First Peter. The word is used to refer to actual physical exiles of the exile who never moved back to Jerusalem. Not only the Babylonian exiles, but later, obviously, those not spoken of in 1 Peter who were removed from Israel, the diaspora. Not spiritual. Not spiritual or eschatological exiles. Now, I'll unpack that term eschatological. It just remains... It is a term that means doctrine of the end of things. What God is doing in preparation to his coming. So this morning, you may say, I don't care. I'm telling you, eschatology matters. What you think God is doing to prepare for the end of all things is very important as it relates to two things in your life why you are doing something, and what you are doing. And motivation, motivation is everything. Parents, do you have children at home? Well, if you're parents, you have children at home. Maybe your parents are gone. No, your children are gone. You're still parents. That's the number one thing. Kids, get outside, feed the animals, clean your room, do all of these things, and look at you going, this is your house. I'm like, no, it's our house. Right? That doesn't really hit home, that sense of ownership and investment. The why is as important as the what, especially for Orthodox Presbyterians. We know theology. We may even know what to do. But if we have a pessimistic perspective about the end of all things, that even though we may work hard, it will fail, why do it at all? Maybe that's just me. Why do it? What's the point? And so my hope this morning is to encourage you that it counts, that it's essential, that Christ not only uses it and it counts for eternity, but it is something that Christ uses to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Two points that I want to make. Christ is king of heaven and earth. Christ has and is establishing the saints on earth. Christ is king of heaven and earth. That's the first point. The second point, Christ has and is establishing the saints on earth. Now, 
I said to my wife jokingly this morning, this is the longest sermon I've written for the book of Revelation. I've had the shortest amount of time. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to move through these notes relatively quickly, and if you want a copy of them, like I said in the past, it'll cost you $10. No, I'm just kidding. They're free. They may be helpful. They may not. Remember, this is a sermon outline. This is not a manuscript, but it may be helpful. What does it mean that Christ is king of heaven and earth? Well, in Revelation chapter 19, John sees a vision of Christ going forth in glory, in war, along with the saints, that's you and me, into the world, and we are ruling according to his word. And there is both grace and judgment. There are those who are brought into the army, into the company of saints, and there are those who have experienced the wrath and judgment of God. But the implications, what falls out from, what is attached to, what is the consequence of Christ's coronation is he gets to then unfold the plan of the Father given to the Son that belongs to his kingship. So when there are all of these beings gathered around the throne, there is this scroll. And the scroll is the plan. It's the script. It is what will happen after the resurrection. But no one can open the scroll. The only one who can open the scroll is the one who died and was raised. Christ is the one that must put into plan that action, or put into action that plan. And so Christ, as prophet, priest, and king, exercised those three offices. He's prophet, he speaks, he gave us the word, he's priest, he ministers, he mediates, he is king. He rules and reigns. He fulfilled those offices in his humiliation, right, as a person on earth, under the law, suffering to death even, and also in his exaltation that Christ even now as prophet, priest, and king mediates a better covenant. What better covenant? That covenant and its dispensation that is in greater fullness and revelation to what we find in the Old Testament. They were looking forward. We see it in its full flowering. We see the Messiah. And so Christ in Revelation 19 is riding out as a mighty warrior and he is bringing to nothing the kingdom of darkness. He has banished Satan. He has bound him deep in the abyss. He has poured out his Holy Spirit and the Spirit and the Word are having effect. We worship in Gaston County a long way from Jerusalem Because Christ is raised. Because the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. You're not here because you're good. You're here because you're called. And you know why you've been called? Because at some point the gospel made its ways to the shore of this country. And then somebody took the Bible and began to preach it somewhere in North Carolina. And then that guy preached, and then another guy, and so on and so on. You were raised in godly homes, and you heard it from your mother or father. And if you didn't, if you weren't raised in godly homes, you heard it from someone. Because how will they hear if there are no preachers? And bit by bit, step by step, the kingdom of Christ is growing as a mustard seed that will become the mightiest tree in the garden. Now, what we are saying then is that Christ's death and resurrection have ushered in a new age. There was no one born 
who ministered, who though were a kind of personality foreshadowing type of the Messiah, like Moses, like David, like Samuel, like Joseph, who delivered his brothers out of famine, all of these men and institutions like the temple or the sacrifices, all of those things spoke of a better way. But none of them were sufficient to establish us in the land, which is why Israel could not remain, because they had a human Joshua, not the God-man Yeshua, Jesus Christ. And so what Christ's death and resurrection have done is pronounce the work of Satan finished, the wrath of God abated, and guaranteed success in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so in one sense, nothing has changed. The plan has not changed. But to us, in the unfolding plan of God, incredible transformation has taken place. But there remains for us even still a great battle, correct? For though Satan is bound, we see this in the book of Revelation. Though Satan is bound in Revelation chapter 19 and 20, we still wage war against his emissaries, the demons. And they come to fight against the saints. And they will not leave us alone. They come to tempt. They come to distract. Boy, distraction is a very useful campaign. Right now, what is our culture distracted by? What is the deal with all this alien talk? You know what it is? It is to get our focus off the earth where the drama of redemption unfolds. And in a very real way, though not when it relates to gravitational pull, the earth is the center of the universe. And as it relates to the plan of redemption, our attention should be primarily not just upon the earth, but upon our neighbors, those with whom we share property boundaries. And you don't get to choose your neighbors, usually. You may get to choose them when you're moving somewhere, but you don't get to choose them when they move in next to you. God puts them there. God put you here. He put you in this church. Why? To pronounce the day of Christ's coming. And Christ will have dominion. And though there is a great battle that continues to be waged, those saints are being killed, even the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christ can't lose. He will win. Now, dominion does not mean that everyone will believe. And that as we progress to the end of this age, everyone on earth will not be a Christian. There will still be and always be those who do not confess Christ. But there will be more wheat than there will be tares. And it will be a salvation and a glory in Christ that will not just be enjoyed by individuals, but by institutions. And when I say institutions, what I mean is that ideas and morality belong not only to one person, but groups of persons. And there are three spheres that God has rightly placed in the earth that are public spheres. There is the home. Does God care about the way our homes are run? Yes. 
He gives great instructions to fathers and mothers and children. Does God care how our churches should be run? Oh, yeah, we know all about that, right? Yes, of course. We see instructions and qualities for officers in the pastoral epistles. We are told how the saints are to live. Do not, the fors- do not forsake the assembly of believers. We just sang about it. We sing and we love and we encourage one another in our worship. We know how to live in the church. We fail oftentimes, right? But for some reason, this great sphere to which every person belongs, the nation, a state, sometimes they're tribes. Do they hold ideas? Do they promote ethics? Will God hold them accountable? Of course he will. Where does that place of outrage when you see injustice on the earth promoted? Where does that come from? Is that a place of distraction? Should you just say, you know what? I'm just a passing through. No, you're not. Passing through to where? Some other earth? Now you may go to heaven and you will. But that heaven is coming to earth. You're just leaving for a little while till God plants the saints here. You're not just a passing through. The kinds of people that say I'm just a passing through are two kinds of people. They don't have the time to worry and they don't want to engage. They just simply don't want to be worried. Leave me alone. Now there are many kinds of people who apply that ethic Not only to worldly affairs, but to family affairs. Can you imagine a husband? I'm just a passing through. No! What do we call that man? A good for nothing. A scoundrel. Or even in the church? Nah. Membership's not taught in the scriptures, right? I'm just a passing through. Well, we'll see. Christ is Lord over all these institutions. And they are not neutral. And they will all be held account. And Christ is Lord over all of them. And if Christ is Lord over all of them, the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. In light of his death, burial, and resurrection, and his now ascended to the throne of heaven and earth, will his authority increase or diminish through the work of the Holy Spirit on earth? Is Christ an impotent king? Or is he a powerful king? And is Christ's plan for the increase of his government and peace or the decrease of it? Do you know Isaiah 9? I made great emphasis. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And so as John is writing to the early church, the very early church, in Rome, who sits at the head Of the state. This is the man who would take Christians, he would dip them in oil, and then he would light them on fire for his garden parties. Right? But we have we have evil men, right, in Washington. Okay, yeah. Every state that has ever existed has at the head of them evil wicked men. Et tu brute, right? Do we not see this over and over and over again? Does the presence of wicked men in the halls of power invalidate or threaten Christ's lordship in heaven? No. The vision that John sees in Revelation 
coincides with Nero's reign in Rome. Is John just saying, yeah, no biggie. Is he just trying to impart some therapeutic emotional stroking to this suffering church? No, what he is saying is this, that the days of wicked men are numbered. They are numbered. And even in the book of Revelation, John says the days of Nero are numbered. Men are like grass. They are like the flower. They are here, then they are gone. But the word of God stands forever. Now, what does that mean as it relates to the flourishing of the church on earth? Second point. Christ has and is establishing the saints on earth. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, we learn something of the kingdom and the Old Testament saints. And I have a huge section in my notes devoted to this, but I want to summarize it in this way. The Old Testament saints were strangers and aliens, not merely to the land of Israel as the um, first generation was wandering through the wilderness, but they were strangers and aliens to something that no Old Testament saint experienced, even those who did make it to Israel. Because if they had made it, why did Christ come? Right? Israel, at the book, in the book of Joshua... They're all there. At the end of the book of Joshua, even the high priest, Eleazar, has died, which means all of those in the cities of refuge had been released to go home. Everyone at the end of the book of Joshua was home. So that's the end of our Bibles, right? Joshua was the final, the sixth, and No. What happens in the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, it's been said, and I think it's a wonderful point, that the first seven books of the Bible correspond to the seven days of creation. And on the sixth day, Adam and his wife are put in the garden. And there, there they are married and they are called by God to rest in his presence. And on that final day of creation... Of sorts, that day of rest. Creation is over. But on the day in which they are called to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day, having been given their great mission, who interrupts worship? Who calls them from the sacrament they should have been partaking from? It is Satan himself. It is Satan that calls us from the house of God and says, Come and let's do this a better way. I have an idea. Let's promote the kingdom of God, not in God's terms, but let's invent new terms. Let's do it some other way. And in the same way, in the book of Judges, God had put men in the garden, in the land, and what happens? They botched it. What does all this tell us? That though we have the covenantal, skeletal framework for how God will redeem us, We are missing the architect, that is, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to bring to fullness and fulfillment those things that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And so, in Hebrews 11, what the writer of Hebrews is getting us to see is there was a time when the Old Testament saints were not home. They were looking forward, forward to what? Well, there are many in the church who will say the same thing that we are looking forward to in the same exact way. Our heavenly home. 
And we are looking forward to that not yet final, full fulfillment of the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. We can say that with absolute sureness because there is still sin. Christ has not come and defeated death yet because we still die. But Christ has, by his Holy Spirit, through his death, burial, and resurrection, brought the city of God to earth. And it continues to come in ever-increasing fashion. Because one of the hallmarks of the new city is that it is full of new creations. And the inauguration of that new city is seen in two primary places. The day of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the destruction of Jerusalem. God was in the destruction of of Jerusalem in 70 AD paving a way for the new bride. The old bride was being cast off, Old Testament Israel, and the new bride was coming. Are you following me? There's a lot here. I'm telling you it's seven pages of notes. But it is essential, and here is why it is essential. You and I are at home. Now, we can be physical exiles. Peter is writing to the Israelites who never went home after the Babylonian exile prior to the coming of Christ. And there are many who are in the church who may be in prison or who are exiles in Different nations. Maybe they are surrounded by people who speak different tongues. They're refugees. What is the gospel to refugees? Hey, you may be living in a foreign nation, but this is your home. Just wait. And what is happening is that the judgment of God at Babel, where the nation, where that nation was cursed and dispersed and the languages were confused, what Christ is doing by the Holy Spirit is reversing that curse. And he is bringing all nations to himself, not into one city over which men rule for their own glory, but one city over which Christ rules by the redeeming power of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament saints then were eschatological exiles because Christ had not yet come. But you and I, now that Christ has come, in Christ, we are home. Now, this home is not yet what it will one day be, okay? That does not mean that God is finished with this world. What it means is this world is the place to which the kingdom of God is coming. It doesn't belong to those who defy Christ's rule and reign. They are the guests. We are the natural inhabitants. We are those, when I say natural, I don't mean natural in the sense that sinful, the way the Bible uses it, but this is the place that God has established us. And in fact, in Hebrews 12, Paul makes, or well, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. There's a lot of discussion about that. But he writes, But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. Now where is that? America, right? No. What is the city of God coming to earth? It's the whole earth. And it's represented by every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is in many respects a global reality. 
that the earth is the heavenly Jerusalem. And it is here that the angels live. They're around us. They protect. They do God's bidding. We worship with them. To the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. We are home. But we are not home yet, are we? It is a now, but not yet fully realized reality. Let me say it this way. In my home, in our home, I wake up in the morning and I look out over my yard and I see the chickens running and now I hear the goats going, and they want to see me. That's all they want to do. They're like babies. Think about that before you get goats. They just want to be with you. And I look out over the yard and I think, it's mine. And because I've subscribed to paperless billing because, you know, I don't want to kill the trees. No. My loan come, the, the, the bank sends me a notice. Oh, by the way, you owe us some money this month. And I'm reminded, oh, it's mine but not mine. It's now but not yet. Do you know where the reality of the red door came from, that painted red door? You got to paint your door red when you signed that last mortgage check, historically speaking. You're free. It's a kind of metaphor, right? We're here, but there is still a struggle. There's still a war. We are home, but not the home that Christ will make for us here once death is destroyed. There are glimpses of the beauty of God. We see his speech pour forth night by night, day by day. The heavens declare the glory of God. Even the heavens are going, Lord, how long will you tarry with these sinners? When will we be able to throw off this dirty garment? But it is still our home. And what we ought to do is live like it is our home, not like we're renters, not like it is a tent. But the things that we do even here matter for the sake of what is to come. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built. Paul is talking about whom? The Gentiles. And into what are they being built? A holy house. And they are fellow citizens in the city of God. That what Christ is doing right now is calling Jew and Gentile into his heavenly house that is being manifested on earth as it is in heaven. And it is continuing to come. And not only is it continuing to come, it is ever increasing in its acceleration, in its manifestation on earth. So then the question is this. How do you live as one who is walking among your inheritance? How do you live when it's your house? When you see trash on the floor and you pay the mortgage... What do you do with that trash? You pick it up. Children, if you're living in your house and you think, oh, this is just my parents' house. I'm not going to live here maybe 18 years. What do you do? You walk by the trash. 
Mom will get it, right? That's what mom does. She picks up all our messes, which is how so many people see Christ in the coming at the end of the age. He'll pick up all our messes. Brothers and sisters, this is our inheritance. Now, I'm not promoting a gospel of environmentalism by using the trash metaphor, okay? Be good stewards. But when you see the lost walking around the world, what are you to do? As Presbyterians, oh, the Baptists will get them. <laughs> we'll get them after they've read R.C. Sproul, right? That's what we'll do. No, what do you do? You go get them. And you say, do you know what it means to belong to the Lord of heaven and earth? You go get them. You wake up excited, maybe not every day, but you wake up knowing, actively confessing Christ before men. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is salvation both to the Jew and to the Greek. To quote Mr. Wilson again, we are to be the light that scatters the darkness. We are to be leaven that works through the whole lump. We are to be salt that preserves the good, to grow from a mustard seed to a giant cedar. A stone that becomes a great mountain, that is the nature of the kingdom. One where we pray and act towards having what is done in heaven be done on earth. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to, and I want you to catch this, heavenize the earth to a redeemed Eden. How do we do this? We preach the word. We take the whole counsel of God's word and we apply it to every member of our bodies. This is a huge mission. It's huge. It's huge. What then is the best step for small churches? Well, to do small things. Those things that belong to the everyday life that we've been given. To take out the trash. And to do so knowing that God is glorified in proper sanitation. <laughs> to be faithful in the little things. To acknowledge little people. To receive the kingdom as little children. In fact, the greatest thing that we can be doing even now is to pray. On prayer, this is what J.I. Packer writes. Men who know their God are before anything else men who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. If there is little energy for such prayer and little consequence practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. I would say the anemic attendance in prayer is directly correlated to a pessimistic eschatology. If you know that Christ is coming and he blesses all labors for his glory, you will do everything you can because you know it all counts. And it is used by God to manifest his salvation on earth. And so Packer writes again, we must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, nor by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level 
Let us ask the Lord to show us. We must become rich in the stuff that matters, in the stuff that endures. We must invest, as Christ says, what? Lay up your treasures in heaven. What does that mean? What has the church always said? I don't know. Which is why your children don't understand it. Which is why they don't do it. What does it mean to lay up your treasures in heaven? It means that everything you do, you do for the glory of God. And when you do it for the glory of God, it has immediate relevance and benefit. Christ's kingdom is not some Gnostic, esoteric, spiritual thing that no one can touch. Right? It's here. It's giving the cold cup of water. It's serving. It's believing. It is to be salt and light. And so whether it's in the small or the big, in public or in private, at home or everywhere you go, live like you are at home. Let's pray. Lord.